Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Oval Roach.
Welcome, welcome. Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach. Yes, that was a different beginning, Mr. Co-host. It was indeed an appropriate beginning for what we're about to delve into. Absolutely. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 is the number. If you want to call and speak to us, if you want to listen to the show live, you can go to our show website. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. And if you want to listen to us on our call-in line, you are free to do so. That's your only means. Yep, make it happen, please. All right. I am not afraid to talk about the whammies. (laughs) Never have been. So, uh, as most of you know, we've been having technical difficulties. No fault of our own. Let's call over the last month. We had a couple of shows uh, a month ago that were interrupted and then we had a couple of shows in between, no problem. And then, then we had one show. The real where, whammy. And the real, the real whammy uh, hit where we had like five, you know, technical go downs. We went off air five times in one show, stayed with it, and still were able to uh, make a show out of it. And um, so what we did last week is we didn't go on live. Um, we played a replay of. of our forgiveness show, which seemed to have been very popular, and the engineers who I was in contact with during that time uh, swore to me that they have fixed and resolved the problem. And I said, "Well, I'm still going to go. You know, I'm not going to go live. I'm going to wait another week." Um, they said, "No, you can go live. You can go live." And I said, "No, that's all right. I'll wait till next week." And so here we are. We come in, load up the studio, and what's the first thing that greets us? An error message of some kind. Saying that uh, we're having some network outages, uh, and our engineers are feverishly working on them. So hopefully it doesn't affect us. It's that some listeners and shows are experiencing network outages. So hopefully it doesn't affect us because uh, that will be uh, unfortunate, especially what we've been through the last uh, few weeks. Yeah, and I was going to add when you stated to no fault of our own that so we purport anyway because uh, not everybody shares that um, that logical thinking there. I was accused of putting the whammy on the last show <laughs> by mentioning in the beginning. Indeed. Yeah, All right. Here we are. Yep. So. Well, we'll just go with the flow. Uh, before we get to our show topic, which uh, has a lot to do with the song we opened the show with. Let's talk about one of your favorite subjects, uh, football, real quick, and Mr. Alden Smith. Tell Uh, us who he is and what happened and why it's important to our conversation. Okay, well, yeah, so for those of you who don't know, uh, who are not 49ers fans or fans of the NFL. And I am not. The 49ers had an outside linebacker named Alden Smith, um, kind of unheard of, actually drafted into the league, but took the league by storm. Um, Had he played the entire, he missed two games of his first season. Uh, He was on pace to break, and I think actually he did break anyway, the record for rookie sacks in a season. So a phenomenal talent. Um, Pass rushing in the NFL is of the utmost importance. 
long story short, there's a there's a wide group, a wide range or group of people out there who believe that uh, Mr. Alden Smith struggles with addiction, drinking in particular, uh, since he has been with the team in the I believe four years that we have had him. Um, he's been arrested numerous times on either DUI or suspicion of DUI. Um, he's been arrested for things such as uh, terrorist threats in airports mm-hmm. and whatnot. And um, alcohol tends to be involved in each and every one of his arrests. So the straw that broke the camel's back was yet another arrest for DUI, which he's fighting. Although he was intoxicated when the officers arrived, he claims he wasn't operating any kind of vehicle. Uh, but an arrest, nonetheless, for um, dam- uh I don't know, what's it called when you damage property? Uh, it was property. Uh, property damage yeah. or something like that. And a felony hit and run somehow was involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the 49ers completely cut ties with him. Anyway, how it ties into this specifically, talking about his alcohol uh, problem. He was suspended last year for eight games, which is half of an NFL season, if you don't include the bye week. And um, one of the things he had to do upon uh, being suspended was to enter and complete a program for his substance abuse, for his drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, athletes getting the star treatment that they get from time to time. uh, He was able to enter a 30-day program, and that fulfilled that requirement set forth by the league and the team. Uh, to get him back on the field sacking quarterbacks ASAP because that's what's important. What was it called? Joe's Recovery House? <laughs> Joe, Joe's Recovery House and Burger Shack. Uh, so he went in and he did his 30 days, and um, we can say today, looking at this pattern of behavior, that that may not have been as uh, strong as it needs to be for him to be entirely clean. And um as we were talking before the show, the host and I, and as he so aptly pointed out, uh, 30 days is not enough time for somebody to get over an addiction if there is seriously an addiction problem. And as he was saying that in the back of my head, I was trying to think of a 30-day window. Is that enough time to really learn something new or accomplish anything in life? Mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine someone learning a new language in 30 days or figuring out a math class in 30 days or whatever it may be. 30 days simply isn't long enough to really learn and gain an intimate knowledge of something unless, as the host pointed out, there is excessive follow-up after that 30 days. We're We've moved from residential to outpatient, and we're going to outpatient three or four times a week, and we're doing that repeatedly for maybe another six months, nine months, however long it needs to be. But to go to into a program where you know the first couple of days you're just learning people's names and where you're going to be sleeping, you're out the door three weeks after that with no follow-up, that's a challenge that not many, if any, could accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I think if people have watched on TV some of the reality um, recovery shows that have been on, um, I, I don't know their names, um, but where where they were 30-day stays, and I'm not knocking 30-day recovery programs because right. any recovery program is a recovery program. Attempting to do um, a good thing. But the reality is, is that a 30-day program just starts the clock. And yeah. unless you are going to follow up, to, to, to make whatever you might have 
started or picked up in that 30 days, the the failure rate is going to be high. And then it's so it's obvious by this gentleman's uh, continued arrest record um, and continued drinking, et cetera. So, right. and we know how difficult alcohol is. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. So. Um, hopefully he's able to turn it around. Uh, you made me aware, unfortunately, this uh, before we went on the air, that my uh, New York Giants were interested in him. Of all the places for him not to go, don't City go to New the York. don't go to New York, <laughs> right? Because you, you need to go uh, to like Denver. No, don't go to Denver. <laughs> no, yeah. right. Well, uh, the, the city you need to go here. to like St. Louis, you know, or. You know, some Midwestern yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. town, Green Bay, you know, someplace where, you know. I, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, St. Louis would be a good one. Jacksonville, perhaps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, no no big city at all. And you got to imagine it's even harder for, and it's hard for anybody. So, I, you know, I got to preface the statement by saying we understand whether you're rich or poor, homeless or in a mansion, old, young, man, woman, addiction does not discriminate. It's difficult for anybody. You do have to imagine, though, with alcohol being the drug of choice in this situation, and we've discussed in past shows why alcohol particularly is so difficult because of society and how it's socially accepted and celebrated even, Mm -hmm. that being a professional athlete is going to make it even harder because – you and your friends now, your new social group, are all millionaires. Mm-hmm. And what do millionaires do when they got a day off or they want to party? There, there's going to be parties. Mm-hmm. They're young mm-hmm. on top of everything, having this money, the attention, the spotlight. And so young people going out to have a good time. More often than not in that group, alcohol is going to be involved. So not only do you have to be strong just to overcome it, you have to be extra strong because you're going to be surrounded by it. Right. That's the bottom line. And we can do a whole show on athletes that have been suspended and suspended for, you know, seasons because sure. of not just alcohol but weed and, and other drugs. Yeah, substance abuse. So just goes to show you that these guys are facing, like, you know, Josh Gordon, a receiver for Cle- uh, Cleveland, you know, guys making millions and millions of dollars this year, and it wasn't enough to stop him from testing positive for smoking the weed. That's right. And uh, here he is now suspended for the whole season. So that's a year out of his career. Uh, money he's not going to get back. The only thing these two guys have going for them is that they're both young. That's right. And um, they time have to, the time to turn it around because and, and, and they're both talented. And because they're talented, and as you noted, these guys are top talent. They're not just, you know, right. run-of-the-mill guys. These are top talent, so they're always going to get an opportunity. Right, and right or wrong, that's that's the way the that's league the way works. If you were not so good, you would be done. But if yeah. you're a top talent, winning is ultimately what matters in yeah. the league, and, and if you can contribute to that, you're going to get some looks regardless of the, the problems that you present. And just a little side note, um, if you're out there in Cleveland, I believe Josh Gordon is working at a used car dealership. Go shake his hand, meet him, maybe buy a car off the guy. <laughs> All right. Um, recovery romances. The attraction distraction. Oh, man. It's big. <laughs> it's big. This is the reason people have, have been on us. When we were day top, now OCG for, uh, I think we're celebrating this coming August 24th, our 
eighth year as our common ground. Uh, you know, we're at least locally where we are, we're the only co-ed program that's that that exists. The only show in town. You know what I mean? So, um, but the argument is always, hey, you know, if if you didn't have the men and the women together, you wouldn't have the game playing, the footsies under the table, and the and the and the and the romances and whatnot. And of course, we have a strong argument as to why we believe yes. and feel that uh, a co-ed program can be beneficial, which is nothing against people that choose to operate same-sex programs. Right. The only thing that we do say, though, however, is when you can eliminate romances between same-sex folks, give, right. me, give me a call. Yeah, right, exactly. Otherwise, I don't want to hear it. Now, the reason we're deciding to do this show at this time, uh, other than the fact that I'm pissed off. (laughs) (laughs) Which is always a good reason to do a show. Um, Is I don't think people that are in treatment really get it sometimes at how destructive it is. And so... I dug down into the archives of, you know, we used to get, and we still do get Counselor Magazine, which, by the way, anyone that's working in the industry as a counselor, this is a great magazine to subscribe to. Um, but we get them, and we keep a lot of the old ones because they have great articles. And, of course, I went all the way back to February of 2008 and found a great article, which I'm going to be quoting. So I want to give the author, in advance, her credits, Terry Holbrook, LCSW, who wrote a great article almost seven-plus years ago. Okay, and the knowledge still applies. applicable to this day. And the title of her article was Relationships in Recovery When Love... This is when we needed that Barry White uh, clip. <laughs> yeah. When love becomes a drug. Right. Okay? And this is exactly what happens. People come into not only a residential environment, it applies to any treatment environment, whether it's NAAA, any 12-step type support group, any type of support group, um, any type of treatment environment, and they get thrown off course by their this perception of them, you know, falling for somebody, you know, in a romantic way. So the focus of getting myself together and getting my act together and addressing my issues now gets tossed to the side. And so one of the reasons I wrote in the program description, the show description, um, the the recovery process gets derailed and sometimes never gets back on the track. So this is a, you know, it's becoming more and more, I, I, I cannot say, sit here and say that it's a cultural thing like with this this generation. It is not. It has existed back in the day, you know, during my time, post my time, and today it's human nature. Right. It's a product of human nature. So why does it happen? Other than the obvious, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. We know the obvious. I tell clients sometimes a funny story. You've probably heard me mention it here on the show. 
people come into treatment, coming to the treatment setting, and you know their their mind, their heart, their soul is really intent on getting this recovery thing going. And you know they get in, and they they've been in, and especially if you're in a co-ed environment, you know they'll tell you, you know I'm not a, I'm not here for that, I'm not about that, I'm married. Oh, I have a significant other. I'm in a long-term relationship and all of that good stuff. And, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not focused on any of the women or the men here, et cetera. And, you know, we sit there nodding our heads and smiling and saying, we'll check back with you after three or four months. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, and, and as is the case, as I've said before, you know, you walk in the door and you look around and you say, there's no one here to my liking. I mean, everyone looks like a chimpanzee or an ape as far as I'm concerned. And four months later, that person you were calling a chimp looks like a runway model. That's right. You know what I mean? That's right. And next thing you know, you're playing footsie with them under the dining room table. Over a nice plate of stroganoff. There you go. So one of the things that happens when we are in our addictive state in the life is we kind of, you know, in, in, in real talk terms, the drug becomes your, your significant other. Very true. You don't have a relationship with a person or persons anymore. You just have this relationship with the drug, whatever your drug of choice is or whatever the drugs you have to be using at that moment in time. And that's who you have a relationship with. So what happens is if you have had the opportunity to develop relationship skills, they diminish. If you have never had the opportunity to develop relationship skills, they get the process of the development gets delayed. Okay? So here you are now. You stop using. You enter treatment. Okay? And all of a sudden, who's the current runway model popular? Or let's use Tom Tom Brady's Brady's wife. wife. Okay. Even though she says she's retired. What's her name? I don't know. Giselle Giselle something. Yeah, Giselle something. All right. Neither one of us want to get in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, Giselle (laughs) so-and-so. And all of a sudden, you know... Let's say if you're a guy, uh, one of the ladies in treatment starts to look like the runway model. And the feelings that are encountered, and we're gonna, I'm going to read some excerpts from this article because it, it, she just nails it. The feelings that are encountered are identical to the euphoria that you felt when you were in your addiction and using the drugs of your choice. But that connection isn't made. And so then what happens is we start we fall into the trap of pursuing let's just for until we get into the names pursuing this euphoria through this other person. Right. Okay? It feels good when there is a an attraction. It feels good if it happens to be mutual. You get good feelings. Remember we used to talk about in treatment about you know, it used to be a booking and just that's Inside treatment terminology, mm-hmm. a, a booking is when it's all picture getting getting a ticket out in the real world for committing a, a moving violation or some kind of traffic violation. That's what a booking is in treatment. There you go. 
for you know seeking good feelings outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So hanging around someone of the opposite sex or same sex, if it applies, for the purposes of seeking good feelings in a romantic way. Yeah. Okay. And all it's doing is replacing what you were seeking when you were using your drugs. You know, you get high, you experience that euphoria that very first time, and you spend the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years chasing that euphoria. Right. Again and again and again. Uh, And if you're fortunate enough to be able to arrest, no pun intended, that process and get and have the you know the the opportunity to dig into why was I chasing that euphoria? What was missing? What was I trying to escape while trying to chase that and all of that stuff? Um, all of that gets thrown to the side in treatment. Yep. Because you know what? I found my other uh, get high here. But of course, the addict, and we'll still use that term when you're early in recovery. We can still say because you haven't you know just. Now you're just like uh, it's like the baby that just left the womb. Remember when we did the first trimester, second trimester, third trimester shows? You know, the baby just left the womb and That's right. it's only three months old. Still got a couple of feet, you know, one a couple of toes still in the womb. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Not fully, you know, it's been in the womb longer than it's been on the outside. Um, so all that gets thrown to the wayside, and the focus now becomes on this new drug, i.e., the romance. Now, I've said I didn't make this up. It didn't come from me. It wasn't something I invented. It was hand, it was told to me. And all I've done in in my time working in the field is see what was stated come to fruition and prove itself to be true. And that is that 99.9% of these recovery romances fail, okay? So we're not going to focus on the 1% that may Beat the odds, Beat so, the to odds speak, yeah. so to speak. The reality is most of them fail and remind me to talk about, at least from my analysis, why they do fail. Sure. Okay. So as addicts stop using substances that alter thinking, feeling, and behaviors, they're left with little coping skills. And the addict turns to what they don't realize is other addictive behaviors which manipulate the brain chemistry for escape. And we term these SLR, sex, love, and relationships. Okay. And it's the same chemicals produced during the euphoria of dating, sex. It provides the same rush of the high, smoking a joint, doing coke, doing heroin, whatever. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. Provides the exact same escape that the drugs and alcohol is produced. When we point this out to the clients, it's amazing how powerful the euphoria of the romance is. I mean, it's almost as if you have the drugs on the property that yeah. they used to use. Because even when we become aware of the romance and take steps to try and, you know, break it up, discourage, discourage it, discourage it, etc. Um 
I would say, what's our record been? Maybe 50-50 over the years in terms of, uh, you know, getting them to part ways and, and focus on their treatments. I mean, they might part ways a little bit and then gravitate back. And a lot of it really depends on the peer pressure. If peer pressure is non-existent, then it's going to, I'm going to use the word flourish. I don't mean that in the positive sense. <laughs> right. But it's going to flourish. Yeah. If the peer pressure is 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 constant. present and constant, then it won't have the opportunity to be nurtured and flourished. Well, see, and then I think you hit on a point. If we're going to throw out um, arbitrary statistics, uh, it depends on how soon you catch it. Mm-hmm. So if it's caught soon enough, like at its inception almost, mm-hmm. where the community notices, oh, okay, it looks like these two are starting to get close, closer mm-hmm. than what we should be getting in mm-hmm. treatment, and they intervene immediately, and the pressure's constant, I'd say then our success rate, defining success by preventing the relationship mm-hmm. uh, from fully blooming, mm-hmm. is very, very high. Mm-hmm. But if it is not caught until the feelings have a pretty strong foundation. Until the until after the letters have been exchanged. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, then, yeah, the excess, the success rate is a lot less so positive, um, only because the relationship has had time to take root and grow, if you will. <laughs> Pulling a phrase out of our own philosophy to use against us. <laughs> Indeed. In this ground, we should take root and grow. But that we don't want those to take root and grow. No, mm. not at all. So we've already said that these behaviors are seen in support groups like AA and NA and other self-help groups that focus on addiction. Um, and I'm just uh, reading a little bit from the article. The experience of falling in love, sexuality, and the process by which human beings date and attract produces chemical responses that can mimic addiction. Human bodies are designed to attract, connect, and bond to one another. So I've always said, look, this is this is nature. This is natural. We're not when when we're not saying that what you're doing is wrong right. in a natural sense. It's 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 natural for people to be attracted to each other. Right. What we're saying is is that you can't do that here. And one of the ways I've tried to get at them is if you're unable to discipline yourself to behave in an appropriate manner in an appropriate place right? and prove to yourself that you can do that, then how are you going to discipline yourself to be in sobriety successfully? So this is a challenge Absolutely. that I put to them, and it might be the tough, one of the toughest challenges in your recovery process, especially if, as some have said, they have found their soulmate, the loves of their life, yes, etc. Despite the speech that we give, you're not going to find your soulmate, the love of your life, your future spouse, your girlfriend, your what have you here. All you're going to find, and I do not mean this in any derogatory way, this is just real talk that we say up front, all you're going to find here is another addict. It's very true. Okay? Back to the article. 
as the chemical intensity settles, the heightened sense of euphoria also subsides. Why is that important? How many times have we seen the game playing start, the romance start, okay, and then for either through our intervention, i.e. program intervention, or peer intervention, it gets blown up, okay, then what's left? Hurt feelings. Oh, yeah. Pain. You know, all of the stuff, you know, just reenacting the stuff that they brought in the door with them. Right. Okay. So now, now, not only do we have to deal with your life issues prior to arriving, we now have to deal with your hurt and your pain and your and and all of the stuff from this, <laughs> this from this new quote unquote relationship that has gone south. <clears throat> Often relationships end as intense as they begin. Relationships. People come in believing that the next relationship is going to be true love. That's how intense the emotion is. This is true love. This is my my one and only. The you know the person I've been waiting for. Yes. You you found them in our common ground, a drug treatment program. Really? Okay. And then the end result is that the dating, the courting, and all that stuff just becomes serial in nature because once you've experienced that euphoria of the recovery romance and, okay, it gets blown up, then here you are going again looking around to experience that same feeling. No different than the pursuit of drugs on the outside. No different. Yeah. And, of course, then we have to be on our toes to prevent it, stop it, see it. And as I'm talking, I'm thinking, I wish we had one of those blinking signs that we could post, that we would have posted somewhere hanging that would, if we, if if a romance came to light, it would just be blinking, romance is in the air. So everyone would be aware, <laughs> would all be on our toes. Yes. Well, oftentimes it stays on the ground for a while. You know, back in the day, we used to have what's called the eyes book. The eyes book, yeah. Okay. I remember that. It was a part about, and she speaks in this article about being honest, and we'll, we'll get to that. But you know, it was part of you know, it was part of you know, being honest. And you would go into the coordinator's office, and you drop would say, eyes. you would drop your eyes. You know, who you have attractions for. It doesn't necessarily mean you had feelings for anybody. Right. Okay. Just who you had attractions for. We called it dropping eyes. And the purpose of it was it made the whole family aware, and so right. the peer pressure could be present. If the family is not aware, there's no opportunity for the peer pressure to be present to prevent these things from taking root and growing, Yes, as my co-host <laughs> so eloquently stated. One of the things we know is that addiction strips individuals of skills needed to nourish a relationship. So what ends up happening is the euphoria that we talked about becomes the goal yeah. of the relationship. Not not nurturing the relationship, building the relationship, growing the relationship, just achieving the euphoria. Okay? Right. <clears throat> when an addict descends into the world of addiction, choice ends. An addict's life consists of, and we know this well, obtaining the drug, Using the drug, 
and recovering from the drug. And and when we say that, we don't mean going getting into recovery and treatment, but you know, sleeping it off, sleeping it off, sleeping off the downside, and then getting yourself back up ready for the next day's high. Right. Okay. So that cycle, obtaining, using, and then recovering. And and that's where the primary relationship becomes the drug, you and the drug. Like they say, when, and I've never heard it used in, from the women, from the woman's perspective to the man. I've always heard it used from the man's perspective to the woman. So like the drug became your girlfriend. I've never heard it say like, oh, so the drug became your boyfriend. Right. Yeah. No. Neither have I. So I think we need to file a formal complaint. Yeah, that's about that because I think that's sexist. gender. You know, yeah. yeah, that's sexist, gender uh, discrimination, discrimination, and whatnot. I agree. It's definitely not equal opportunity. Right. But then again, the argument can be there's not as many women in treatment as there are men, which and, is valid. So you know, I think we would lose on both points in the court, most likely, and probably have to pay attorneys' fees to the other side, <laughs> most likely. So, back to the article real quick. As the reality of addiction is first explored, the addict is with others who understand and can relate to the experience. So, we're in treatment. I'm with other people who I identify with, okay, who've had the same experience as me using and, you know, whatever the life is, we've all experienced the same thing. And the members of the group, the counselors, provide the validation of the reality of the addict's life and the pain that it has been experienced living that life. You know, so when we say identify with you, I've been there, I've done that, you know, that, you know, it provides the validation. Right. The intimate connection that the addict desires is being fulfilled through these connections. The process of trust begins to build for the first time. Because if I'm talking to you and sharing with you about my experiences in the addictive life and you're sharing with me, we start to develop a trust because, you know, I'm talking about stuff that I, I wasn't talking about to just anybody on the street. Maybe even people within my own family I wasn't talking to them about. But here we are, are all together. We all have a common issue that we're dealing with. We're all trying to get this recovery thing. So we're sharing our experiences. And so we develop kind of a bond and we've developed mutual trust in, in that sharing process. The problem, however, <laughs> is when, and I have to preface, preface this with a combination of immature and irresponsibility because we can't take the person off the hook in terms of their behavior. So that's where the irresponsibility comes in. But there is it does there is immaturity so immature and immaturity and irresponsibility plays a part. So back to the article. Often the beginnings of trust and intimacy can be confused with love and/or sexuality. So when the guy starts sharing with a member of the opposite sex let's say, for example, and there starts to develop, as a result of this sharing, some bond and trust, mutual trust back and forth, okay, they start to confuse this with, okay, there's something going on here. Yes. You know, these feelings. Quite easily. 
<laughs> yeah, quite easily. That's where you're going really, really quick. You, I think guys, for the I think for the males, all it takes guys is a, are funny. All it takes is a, a smile or a nod to the head. <laughs> yeah, an introduction. Oh, hey, welcome to the program. My name's so and so. She digs me right off the bat. <laughs> he tells no lie. We've seen it. Yes. <clears throat> so. They can make they they have this confusion, okay. Early recovery brings with it a sense of confusion with regard to all feelings, including love, bonding, and sexuality. Early recovering addicts fall in love with others who show care and concern and who can relate to or are walking the same path. It is common for a client to believe that he or she has fallen in love with a fellow client in treatment a member of his or her support group, or even their counselor, for God's sake. That's right. However, part of the treatment and recovery process is helping the client understand and explore these feelings if they're honest enough to bring them to the fore. And we can't emphasize enough about when we talk about honesty, it's about the person being honest with themselves and the environment being trusting enough that they can come go into gender group and talk about, hey, you know, I have strong feelings for this person or I have strong attraction to this person that may lead me astray. Mm-hmm. Can I get some help and feedback from my peers and how I can deal with this? See, when that happens, that's mature and that's responsible. When you keep it to yourself and then start to act off of it. Danger zone. Exactly. And then, and I'll interject here for a moment, and mm-hmm. I don't know if you're going to get to this or she mentions this, but as we're now talking about the dynamic of the two folks interacting and, like you said, developing a mutual trust because we're sharing things now with one another that we haven't spoken about, someone is reciprocating that and trusting you with someone, which can also make you feel really good. Mm-hmm. Some people... um get a better feeling off of having someone share something deep about them with you. The sending the signal that I trust you enough to share this with you. Right. That can almost feel better than being able to finding someone to trust with stuff that you're trying to let off. I think a huge component of that when that type of sharing is taking place is the vulnerability that exists. Because when you are feeling vulnerable, you will look to cling to anything that is going to act as a security blanket, something mm-hmm. that's comforting, something that you feel will protect you mm-hmm. in this moment of openness and vulnerability. And when that something is this other client that mm-hmm. you're speaking with, um, very easy to get feelings kind of crosswired, if you will, in that regard too, because this person is now the symbol of safety protection in my moment of weakness and vulnerability. Right. Once addicts start to become clean, mm-hmm. so the cobwebs start to clear out, we've been in treatment a little bit, you know, the toxins are removing themselves from our bodies and our minds are starting to clear, the fog is lifting. <clears throat> we start to, the feelings start to come back that we were masking with our drug use. That's right. Okay. And the craving to escape the pain continues, which is natural, is normal. 
I mean, we've had many callers and say that, look, you know, all of a sudden I'm now overwhelmed with all these feelings. I don't know what the hell to do. Right. Um, because I've been using for 15 years. I haven't felt this stuff. So this is normal and natural. That's going to happen once you stop using at some point, and they may all flood and rush back to you, which is a good thing. It's just being able to deal with it um, and ride it out. That's the difficult part. And that's where your peers come in, obviously, and, and, and some assistance from the counseling staff come in to help ride that out. Now, many have learned sex, love, and relationships provide the escape for which they are searching. So it's like they just substitute one thing for the other. The addict begins to feel a connection with others who are experiencing the pain with them, and that connection is often romanticized, as you were just stating, mm-hmm. or sexualized, which is for us in the treatment world, the when it, when how can I say this? When it gets sexualized is when they have been able to carry it through from point A all the way to point D without intervention, meaning it wasn't caught. And they were able to get to that point of sexually acting out. Mm -hmm. So we obviously want to catch it during the the romantic period period (laughs) before it gets to the sexual acting out. Because as we've seen, once it gets there, and then it still ends up, there's no winners in that. Um, And then since the relationship is forbidden, it just becomes a reenactment of pain from what they've experienced outside and, and, and the way they go about trying to obtain it in secretive fashions or hooking up while on appointment or on pass and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they do whatever they can to hide it. Again, we're speaking to immaturity, irresponsibility, and not being honest with oneself. Now, here's an interesting thing, and we're going to get a little bit into, not too deep, just into brain chemistry. Okay, so... We know the brain, we talked about love being a drug. That was the title of our article, The Love Drug. The Love Drug. Right. Brain chemistry adds fascinating enlightenment to the understanding of how love becomes a drug. The brain produces norepinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine, adrenaline, testosterone, and various hormones, all of which are love-related chemicals. Here's the fascinating thing. These chemicals produce feelings of attraction and desire perpetuating the mating process, wonderful for the human race. They provide intense feelings of euphoria and satisfaction. The chemicals released during drug use elicit the same response. So we're dealing with the same thing. Same exact thing. Neurologically speaking. Yes. The addict becomes accustomed to living under the influence of these chemicals. High is chemically enhanced or achieved by manipulating the brain's natural chemicals. Interesting stuff right there. We're fighting a battle. We are indeed. (laughs) We're fighting nature and chemicals. A serious battle, yes. A biological war. So... 
our task to prevent these recovery relationships from taking root and growing when we know in advance that the majority of them, and I'm using that word loosely because before I said 99.9%, are not going to end well. And you can you can feel free to speak to your experience of, you know, that's just my experience. 99.9 have not ended well. No, yeah, no, I would have to, I would have to agree from what I've seen. Okay, it's our job, though, as uh, counselors and professionals, to arm the clients with the skills and tools to make changes in thought processing, feelings, and behaviors. And we have talked about one of the key, 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 key things in this process of making that happen over and over and over on the show. People have called in and we've advised them on, you know, this is what you need to do, and that is establishing and then enforcing boundaries. Nothing is more important to preventing the recovery romance than having boundaries. Mm-hmm. And yes, I guess immaturity comes into play. Yes, irresponsibility comes into play. But we have to teach, obviously, some what boundaries are, how do you implement them, and then how do you enforce them. Because if there's no boundaries, then anyone can get to you. Anyone could feel or believe that they can and... I've, you've heard me say this. I've said this to clients. Some people come in with the mistaken belief that although we do everything possible to make sure this is a that the treatment environment is a safe environment, almost a sacred environment, so that recovery can take hold or take root and grow, as we like to say. Mm-hmm. The reality is that there are going to be people who are in treatment environments who have a different agenda. Right. That's just the reality. And some have agendas of a romantic nature. And some are like predators on the Serengeti. (laughs) That's very true. And if they see someone that and it may not even be someone that they are truly I – mean, I can understand if someone says, I am, you know, because I ask, you know, are you really seriously attracted to this person? Meaning, if you were on the street and you saw this person, would this be the type – would this person just physically, the physical attraction part, mm-hmm. would this be the type of person that you would be attracted to? Right. If the answer is no, then I know which direction to go. If the answer is yes, then that – requires a different conversation because then now you're dealing with a totally different thing. You know, they just happen to luck out. A person who fits their 10-point criteria is here. Yeah, checks all the boxes. You know what I'm saying? And so we have to deal with that differently. But there are people who come in that it makes no difference whether they they fit the criteria or don't fit the criteria. They're just there. And I don't mean this in the, the extreme negativeness of the word. You're about to use the word predator? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 
yeah. But, but that's the only term I can come up with because they can sense the, you know, the insecurity, that the weakness, the vulnerability that you spoke mm-hmm. about, yeah. and pounce. Right. And pounce. And more often than not, I'd say more often than not, I can't recall when it's been a woman doing that to a man in treatment. So I have to say it has always been a male doing that to the female in the treatment environment. So I've always counseled the women, especially in, as a group, you guys have to cocoon yourself and, like, move like one amoeba. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And not allow anyone to get in there like a pride of lions. Yeah. You know what I mean? And because there are predators that that's, enter the treatment environment. I mean, that's just the, the, that's just the truth. I don't know what, it how is. else well, to say it. Well, it's the nature of life. There, there are also individuals that exist like that outside treatment exactly. walls. And, and folks um, who show a certain vulnerability outside of treatment walls as well. My experience is also the same as yours as it pertains to men and women, um, and the men typically being the predators out of the predator and prey kind of mm-hmm. comparison we're using here. Um, in the and, treatment setting. In the treatment setting. Um, and that's – and again – I can only speak from my experience, but I would say even in the times where I saw the woman being the playing the role of the predator, if you will, or the initiator, mm-hmm. um, the men, in my experience, tend to be willing prey in, mm-hmm. in that regard. So um, it, you can't really you can't really prey on something that is giving themselves up if such an opportunity were to present itself. True that. And True so that. yeah, I've seen and experienced the same thing. I think that begs for a short story. Uh-oh, story time. There was a young lady in the adolescent facility years ago mm. who was, shall we say, miles ahead. You know how they say, I mean, young girls mature faster than young boys, boys adolescent yeah. boys. She was not in the same time zone in terms of how far ahead she was right. than these boys in her age group. That's okay? right. And they were like, um, they just—it was like they were intoxicated, hypnotized, hypnotized by her. And it was one right after the other, right after the other. And the funny—and and yes, folks, this was funny to watch. Sometimes when you're dealing with adolescents, some of the stuff that they do is is hilarious. It's humorous for sure. It was funny to watch each one engage with her, um, you know, innocently, let's say, and get their hearts broken, devastated, (laughs) and want to, (laughs) I don't know, uh, almost like they're ready to pack their bags and leave because, you know, know, it's over. I'm crushed. They're crushed. (laughs) You know, their whole set. Self, sense of self-worth has just been decimated. She's moved on to the next person, and one by one by one by one, the same thing just replayed itself. And it was just so funny to see. We weren't making fun of their pain, but because they're young boys, we, we could laugh at them. Yeah, uh, especially in that it, it was a, It's just a learning experience for them to go through that. And, you know, years later, this young lady is now grown with children, Okay. Right. And I I remember saying to her how you know she was just a heartbreaker of these boys That's back it. in the day. That's it. Um. And 
it was just amazing to watch. Oh, so, yeah. you, so you had an opportunity to see it, the roles reversed um, or, or someone using someone being so far advanced at that age with, with her peers that she used their intent to try and come at her like against them. Oh, yeah. Hurt That's their good. feelings. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's right. And sent them away like puppy dogs. That's right. You know? I feel like there's like a comic character who does that, like yeah. can take your powers and use them against yeah. you, so to speak. Exactly. I do remember that, though, and there was uh, there were conversations with some of the boys whose turn it was, if you will, like, what makes you think you're any different than the last guy? But each one of them, it's like uh, the the analogy where – You've got a line of people at the edge of a cliff, and the first person takes a step off and falls to their death. Mm. And the second person has an opportunity to see what happened to the first person, but somehow expects a different result. And one by one, they're off the cliff, and you got to, like, at some point, but no, each one, no, it's different with me. Yeah. I know. We I, talked. I'm the one that she wants. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, pretty funny. Pretty funny for sure. Oh, goodness. Um,. Sex, love, and relationship, recovery, romance, the attraction, distraction. So here's what my spiel has been, okay, as we wrap this up a little bit. You wanna, you want to do a quick little uh, PSA before you give us your final spiel? Uh, no, we can roll right into okay. it. Okay, all roll. right. Well, I got it in my head. <clears throat> Let's roll with it. I tell them, so you walk in, you know, we always say you walk in alone, you're going to leave, theoretically speaking, when you drop your foot, you're going to leave alone by yourself. There's a story I tell to the females and the story I tell to the, to the males. To the females, I touched on it a little bit about you guys being, you know, they're always underrepresented in treatment. Um, you know, look at yourself as the prey and stick together and don't let anyone penetrate that group, that circle. And if anyone does penetrate, i.e., it's like, you know, if the hyena comes in and pulls one of you out, everyone should march against the the offending person. Yes. You know, so in our language, everyone should be dropping slips. Everyone should be going against to find out why did you do this, what's your intent, to defend this person. Because she may have been a kind of a semi-willing participant, you know what I mean, and displayed some uh, periods of weakness, if you will. Some wounds were showing. Okay, exactly. And so you all need to come together and you need peer support, but you also need to go out against that hyena and uh, let them know that that's not gonna. That's not gonna. Uh, we're not gonna go for that. Right. Okay. So you're the pride of of the female. You know, the pride of lions. Female lions. I know that's every time I say that it's like uh, oxymoronic because a pride is of female lions only. Yeah. yeah Male exactly. lions don't hang around together in prides. Um. Actually, we will take a break. Yeah, because we're at the top of the hour. Let's take a quick PSA, come back, then we will wrap. And boy, I can't wait till we play our topic 
close song. I can't wait. <laughs> sure thing. We're going to drop a quick PSA, and we'll be right back. The Children's Health Council in Palo Alto has been serving children, youth, and teens in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties, as well as the greater San Francisco Bay Area, for over 60 years. The goal of the agency is to remove barriers to learning, regardless of language, location, learning style, or ability to pay. At CHC, we specialize in ADHD, learning differences, anxiety and depression, and autism through our center, two schools, and community clinic. No matter how big or small the issue is, just call us, and we'll help you navigate your child's journey together. Visit our website at www.chconline.org or call us at area code 650-688-3625. Again, that's area code 650-688-3625. At CHC, we're here for you. And CHC, estamos aquí para usted. Okay, welcome back to Roadshow Recovery. We're talking about recovery romances, the attraction distraction. Yes. When you Major. when you start a relationship in the treatment setting and you have been especially with someone that's and and both of you all have been present in the treatment setting for a period a, a decent period of time, 3-4 months, let's say. And you decide to enter into a relationship, a recovery romance, okay, and continue it post-treatment, there's a reason why it has such a high failure rate. And this is my own personal, unscientific analysis. Raw and uncut. Okay. Yep. You have circumvented the natural order of things. When you date somebody or are dating someone, that is the time period by which you have to prove yourself, Mm -hmm. establish trust, establish a bond, and determine whether, and the the parties determine whether or not the, the other parties are worthy enough for information to be shared. So we start off with surface stuff, okay? And then as time goes on, if the person is deemed worthy and trustworthy, okay, you start to share more of yourself. You give more of yourself. You allow yourself to become more vulnerable, yeah, as vulnerable, you such, as you open. stated, and open, okay, open to being hurt, mm-hmm. okay, as things as you you know divulge more and more and more about yourself. And when those things are, when that information is acquired, not through that process of proving yourself worthy of having that information, proving yourself worthy of being trusted, proving yourself worthy of of having that investment. Because when when people share things with you, they're kind of investing in That's you. That's very true. Yeah. Okay. You have circumvented that natural process. So you've got you've obtained the information through unnatural means. 
So now here you are, you're sitting in groups and you're you're learning about, you know, this person's hurt and pain and their issues and, and all of the things that contributed to their lifestyle of using. Okay? And so now you get involved with this person romantically and I always ask the question, what is there then to learn? What is then there to ask? The process of that, that courting that goes on, that dating that goes on, that, uh, where you learn about the other person, has been circumvented. Right. So now you're together. What are you talking about and learning about? And, and, and you know, the stuff that would normally happen in the early stages of a relationship that builds the bond, builds the trust, so on and so forth, naturally. Right, exactly. You don't know what it took to get there. Uh, you know, as you're saying that, I think of my um, – actually my grandfather, who has always loved gardening. Mm -hmm. And he recently, over the past handful of years, has particularly become um, enthralled with, if you will, bonsai trees. Mm -hmm. So he has a little bonsai tree garden. And so the idea that you can plant a flower, say start with a bonsai tree from a seed or uh, just something, uh, uh, some roots, a trunk at its very beginning stages and watch it grow slowly, mm. nurture it until it becomes fully blossomed or what you want is a very different experience where you are essentially establishing a connection and a bond with this living thing versus somebody bringing you a flower or a tree that's already in full bloom and it's done. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to put into it. It's just there presented and it, and it sits there. Mm -hmm. um, there was no connection built for it to get to where it was. Right. And that is the foundation and the building blocks of a relationship as well. Right. It's, it takes away the learning of one another and understanding the communication that it took to get to where you're at as opposed to it just being presented on a silver platter yep. and it's done. And that's, you know, it doesn't work like that. You're not going to feel the same way you might feel had you had to go through, like you said, you the conventional it. means right. of starting with it when it was nothing and slowly building it up to what it will eventually blossom into. Right. So that's my my analysis, unscientific, of why these relationships fail. Yeah. I got to be right there with you on that. Okay. So if you're in treatment... In recovery, stay away from the recovery romances. The attractions will provide a distraction. Indeed. Let's uh, thanks give thanks once again to uh, the, author. the author of that article from way back in February of 2008, Tara Holbrook, LCSW. Um, great information um, that she gave us to feed off of uh, for this topic. Beautiful. All right. Well, uh, we do see that we have some callers on hold. We are going to get into the recovery support hour next, so we appreciate your patience. We will get to the callers on the other side after this commercial break. Thanks for uh, hanging with us.
Roach on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment and recovery. Our Recovery Support Time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery Support Time. A time for us to help you. Drugs and 
you know, used them during sexual activity and, you know, it, it felt that it improved or in heightened the sexual experience. So now where you're not using drugs and you're going to engage in sexual activity and either you have already and it didn't seem the same or you plan to and you're wondering if it's going to be the same, that's upstairs. Okay. So you have to change your thinking, otherwise you're always going to be comparing it to what you experienced before. When the body is made to experience it at its height, as high, as high, as high as it can go, naturally. Yeah, and that, that makes upstairs, sense. That starts upstairs in the brain. Okay. So... I'll just give you this suggestion, and that is give it some time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. You're very welcome. Are we Roach on Recovery or just Dr. Roof? (laughs) Last I checked, yeah, Roach on Recovery. Not a – what was that popular – Show on the radio, uh, Love Line, Love Line with Doctor uh, whoever I forget his name. Yeah, <laughs> Roach on recovery, not Love Line. Doctor Drew, I think was his name. No, Doctor Drew is the guy that does the uh, um, addiction. He does the recovery thing on TV. Doctor yeah, Drew. Yeah, but I think that's why he was famous and got to TV from Love Line. Oh, really? No, oh, okay. That okay. was where he started in radio. Oh, okay. Uh, Doctor Drew, yeah. Didn't know that. All right. Um, can I get can I get my clip? You know it. Yeah. Oh wow, got the full the full we, version. We went we went full. I was even gonna let it run another couple seconds, but I'm excited to hear the question. Okay. Uh, from Marvin, what is the difference between a treatment? And a recovery. Okay. So forget the A's and just say treatment and recovery. Mm-hmm. Well, one easy way of answering that is to say, well, treatment is the is the highway by which you get to recovery. <clears throat> the process by which you achieve recovery. So that's the difference. What's another analogy we can you could, we can use? So. The let's say you have a broken leg. The treatment for that is, you know, they reset it, put it in a cast, and then the recovery process is when, you know, you give it time to heal, and then you start some therapy to, you know, start walking on it again and getting the leg back stronger and stronger and stronger until it's back to where it was before. So you got treatment and recovery. Two different processes. So I missed that while screening a call. What did you say the difference between the two was? That I had no idea. Fascinating. (laughs) All right, moving right along. Um, Christopher B. from San Carlos. This is my fourth treatment program. Okay. How do I know this is the right program for me? Interesting. We don't, but the fact that there's been four 
let's say for argument's sake that there have been four different modalities. He's tried residential, he's tried day treatment, he's tried outpatient, he's tried so just 12-step support groups, you name it. Though that, that That's four right there. Sure. So is it the pro, is the, are the problems the different modalities or is the problem Chris? Not Chris, the co-host. Chris B. Yeah, no, unfortunately, um, it's that question reminds me of something I heard somebody say a long time ago. And when it boils down to it, when the individual is ready, any modality will work. That's right. But when they're not ready, it doesn't matter where you put them. Right. So it's it's going to work if you allow it to work, yep. Mr. B. All right, let's take a call from Juan from San Mateo. Juan, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Can you speak up a little bit? <clears throat> yes. Um, okay. So my question is, um, why does cocaine make you so horny? Easy answer is it's a stimulant. Uh, but I think as the, I don't know if you were able to listen to the last caller. We had somebody call in. Um, and so it just, it drugs tend to heighten sensitivity they release way more neurochemical transmitters of a particular type contingent upon the drug you're using than your brain would naturally use um and so you're you're basically over overflowing or flooding um your brain with an amount of neurochemical transmitter that is not naturally meant to be present dopamine dopamine yeah there's several serotonin mm-hmm. um and so uh, the caller who called in previously uh, was concerned about lack of sex drive or pleasure with sex moving forward because they had used so many drugs and had sex while high so many times. Uh, and there is a little bit of relevancy to that concern because when you train yourself to you know, feel a certain way by unnatural means to go back to just letting things be natural – there's going to be a period of time where you're going to have to adjust. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. You're very welcome. Eloquently stated. Why are we getting so many questions about sex and cocaine? I mean, what? It's the relationship uh, <laughs> show. You know what I mean? So all things relationship are being talked about. <laughs> Uh, Michael W., Foster City, wants to know, do you believe that throwing yourself wholeheartedly into AA and getting a sponsor is the only way to stay sober after uh, a different treatment setting? So let's say if you were in residential or day treatment or something like that. Oh, yeah. So I would just, I'm leery of using the words only and... Yeah, the absolutes, Bob. Yeah, the absolutes. Um, it never the case. I wouldn't. It's probably a great idea to throw yourself into AA or any program it is that you select wholeheartedly and 100%. And in my opinion, that gives you the best chance of success when you're completely diving into something and trusting in the process that that particular program has to offer. Uh, but to say that that's the only way to get clean. Um, well, he's saying in. in one of the things, is, if if it was a question he was asking over the phone, I would ask him, when you use the term throw yourself into, 
you know, my ears perk up to that because I'm wondering, are you saying that, so you're leaving one treatment setting and the state in which you're leaving, you're not where you need to be, and so you have to throw yourself into this other thing, like going from, you know, one thing to the other um, with no breathing room whatsoever just to make sure that I stay connected, clean, to clean and sober. Because mm-hmm. if that's the case, then we need to back up because you shouldn't be leaving one treatment setting and still be in that condition. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You should be in a condition of, yeah, it's early recovery and, you know, I'm out there for the first time in a new state, but I'm committed to my recovery and I'm going to use this, this these support mechanisms to help me along the process. Right. But if I got to throw myself into them in order to make sure that I stay on the straight and narrow, well, nothing is going to keep you on the straight and narrow if you're not, you know, committed. You know what I mean? They should be an adjunct, not, Absolutely. you know, the be-all and end-all. Uh, yeah. All right. This is a good question from Zach on Redwood City. Do you think opening up past trauma in treatment is a good idea? Opening opening up past, past. as in beyond trauma or about past trauma? Oh, I'm sorry. Opening up about past trauma. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, usually with addiction in general, uh, and actually kind of a great show topic that we covered because we were using relationships to replace drugs. Addictions in general, whatever it is you choose to use, whether it be another individual in relationships or drugs, there is some sort of void being Built. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to acknowledge or face and attempt to overcome whatever it is that void is. And another way of saying void or looking at void are past traumas. Mm-hmm. Past traumas leave past traumas leave damage. They leave voids. Um, and so if you never open up about them, you deprive yourself of the opportunity to confront them, to face them, to take the burden off of your shoulders and lay it on to another person or people. Resolve them. And resolve them mm-hmm. and ultimately overcome them and mm-hmm. resolve them. And by overcome, we don't mean that you're going to forget about it or it will not have an impact on exactly. you when you remember it, but learning ways to cope with when those times come. Uh, if you never get to that place, then that void continues to live with you. Clearly, if you are in a program or using drugs, you haven't learned how to appropriately cope with it, and that pattern will continue until you take a risk and open up about whatever that trauma may be. And the best time to take that risk is when you're in the treatment setting. That's the best time to take that risk and and, and go for it. All right, Drew C., Sam Bruno asks, do you think it's possible to stay clean in your old stomping grounds? You can stay clean anywhere. It's not about where you are, where you live. Um, It's what you are about personally. You know, very few people have the luxury of, you know, changing their 
their living situation or their living environment, um, and, you know, and, and moving to another neighborhood where, you know, drugs and whatnot may not be so prevalent. But the reality is, you know, no matter where you live, you can live in neighborhoods where drugs are not so obviously overtly prevalent and they are still easily accessible. So the, it always comes back to you, me, the individual. Well, what am I about? Am I about sobriety? Am I about recovery or am I about something different? And if you're about sobriety, if you're about staying clean, if you're about living a positive and constructive life, the only person that can possibly, that can possibly change that is you. And it will be a decision, not a mistake. So as I like to say, I want to get you to the point where you can be stuck in an elevator with 17 people smoking crack, and that's not going to have any influence on whether or not you smoke crack. You're just going to look around and acknowledge your surroundings and say, oh, well, when is the elevator repairman coming? <laughs> Let's see. Eric what should someone do when they think their friends are using? Oh, that's a big one. That's a good one. I wonder if she's... It's a very different story if this gentleman is referring to that scenario while in a residential program versus just friends in society. I, I, I like to take it out and say, because... Let's say friends in society, because we we in the residential setting which we have, we always try and teach about practicing, not accepting certain behaviors, right? You know, in your realm, you know? right? And so, let's say you have, you know, you, you know, your circle, one of your friends has taken to using or is still using, who, whatever the case may be, you know, what's going to be your approach to that, if any? Okay. Uh, well, my opinion is this. If I am incapable of reaching this individual, mm -hmm. which I very well may be, uh, I would take the responsibility on to figure out, through some means, who is this individual closest to in their life, mm -hmm. whether it be a sister, uncle, mom, dad, a different friend, whoever the case may be, and without just simply going and divulging this business to this the individual that I've thought of, mm -hmm. I might have a conversation with the individual and say, look, as a friend of yours, I'm concerned because what you're doing is definitely having or going to have a negative impact on your life. If it continues, um, I'm not so sure, you know, I'm the individual that you want to have this conversation with. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did have to bring it up because it is a concern. Uh, I know that you're very close to uncle Tom or mm -hmm. your girlfriend, Lisa, mm -hmm. Um, I think it's really important for you to have a conversation with this individual about it. Um, and I do have to say I feel it's my responsibility if you are trying to hide it from or don't want to bring it up that I may end up bringing it up to Uncle Tom or girlfriend Lisa, not to hurt you in any way, but just to bring the concern to the table. Um, but I would like to give you the opportunity to do that first. Uh, and then I would follow up with the individual. And if it hasn't taken place after an amount of time I've set in my head or that we've agreed upon, mm -hmm. I might relay that information to whomever this individual is closest with 
just to say, hey, you know what? I had a conversation with so-and-so. They're doing some things they probably shouldn't be doing at this point in their life. I'm concerned. I'm not able to reach this individual, but I believe they need help. You are the person that they are closest to. Perhaps you could have a conversation with that individual. Um, And I don't know if I'm prepared to do much more than that. But at least I would feel I would feel good about having done what I can, having passed it off to somebody who I believe has the best chance at doing something without overstepping my bounds or going too right. far to burn that bridge. And I guess that's the ultimately you know, I tread lightly in that situation because I don't want to cross some sort of boundary one way or the other. So it's kind of a balancing act. Okay. Good stuff. All right, let's go back to the phones real quick. We have Danny from San Mateo. Danny, welcome to the show. Welcome. Um, may I address that? May you address what? The the question and ask the answer that was given. Uh, sure, I, go ahead. I have some input on that one right there. Go ahead. I, I had a friend. Uh, uh, and when I say had, he is no longer a friend. But we've known each other since uh, since he was around around about 16, and I'm almost 59 now. So mm-hmm. he we we've known each other, we would say for a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. And I went through all the changes that he talked about, things doing, talking to people that were supposedly close to him. And it didn't do nothing but cre- create havoc and, and controversy. And what happened to me is psychologically, there was a lot of damage done because the, he, you have a guy who's all, who, who's dead set on he, he, well, who first at first lied about being on drugs when he was. Secondly, when he when he finally admitted to it, he was the type of guy who was so far gone that uh, he he had this entitled. The entitlement thing going on with him, where he believed that he was entitled to to, to whatever somebody else had, uh, for whatever reason. I, I don't know if the drugs made him feel that way, or if that's just the way he that was him. Period. But you know, wh- what I'm trying to say is this right here: is that to me, the best thing to do in a situation like that is change your circle. You don't need to be there because you're not going to change a person who doesn't want to change themselves. And the, the fact of the matter is this, is that by you you staying there trying to do that, you damage yourself because what happens is they, they, they put up all, all their, uh, their deflector shields, so to speak, and they'll run around there and turn things around and, 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 and have things to, bad things to say about you because you're clean and sober and make you look like you're the oddball because their whole circle, you know, the dad and the brothers are all uh, drug addicts themselves. So in, in turn, you know, yeah, you may offer some advice, but if they're not accepting of that advice, uh, advice, why stick around and try to go to somebody else you think that may be close to them when when, when they're, they've been doing it all, all along and that person... That, that as close to them know that they're doing it, and they're, the person is coming back and telling me, which was his sister, telling me, well, that's his weakness. So they're telling me, in other words, they're encouraging the whole situation by saying, well, that's his weakness. He, he He's going to do it anyway. 
So uh, to me, that 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 puts me in harm's way. Right. Because what right. Ha- what what happens is I tell his brother about it, or I tell somebody else about. It, I think it's close to him. He gets the news. He wants to fight me. Right. Uh, you know, by, by by how dare I expose him? You know, or, or say anything about it. Let him do what he's going to do and accept it as it is. So that's perhaps is what I should do and move on. Right, Danny. Let me uh, let me just interject real quick. So you're you're absolutely you're right. You know, in some cases that is the best thing to do, and the only way to know that is knowing the situation and the parties involved. And sometimes it's best sometimes not to say anything but go another direction. So I appreciate your input on that on that previous question. Do you have a question for us, my friend? Oh well, I, I just uh, I, I'm just thinking if uh, I just uh, on the antisocial aspect. I mean, let's just say you're uh, not a very social person, mm-hmm. and uh, you believe that that in order to be able to communicate with somebody, they have to be high or they have to be a little tipsy or something. Uh, how do I remedy that, you know, in reference to, to becoming uh, a more sociable, being able to connect, you know, and, and kind of uh, 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 communicate more effectively? One of the things, one of the exercises you can do is, and, and the prerequisite to this exercise is that it requires gut-level honesty. And what you have to do is you have to dig down deep into the reasons behind the uncomfortability. By the way, I don't know if there's such a word as uncomfortability. Yes. Okay. Um, You have to drill down into that and answer why is it that I feel this way in these situations. Is it some insecurity behind it? Is there some fear behind it? Is there some feeling of inadequacy behind it? Whichever one or ones it may be, I have to determine that. And once I determine what it is and which one though it falls under, fear, insecurity, or inadequacy, I can then begin to address it. So if it's an insecurity, what's the insecurity that causes me to not feel a certain way in these social situations where I would like to feel a different way. So before we can answer that, we first have to identify what's what's the root cause of it. So that's an exercise that you can do to start that process. But it requires gut-level honesty. That's why I always tell people sometimes, do it in a closet if you have to. But you have to answer those questions. And I would be interested in knowing if next week you can call us back and tell us what you came up with. Okay. I, I think I can. I, I, I know for a fact that some of it has to do with the, the, the feeling of being inferior. You know, this is what I've been taught okay. at a don't, young age. So. Okay. Don't tell, us, don't tell us now. Okay. You go through the exercise. Okay. All and right. then when you call us back, you can tell us in a nutshell, look, it's 
an insecurity, this is what it is, or it's a fear, this is what it is, or if it's both, you know, you name what it is, and then we can go from there. Okay. All right. All right? Fair enough. Great call, Danny. Thank you very much. And this just in, according to Dictionary.com, uncomfortability, not a word. Thank you very much. <laughs> Once again, the host is making up words as he goes along. Uncomfortably, yes. Uncomfortability, no. All right. Let's go to Mark from East Palo Alto. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I have a question. Can a romantic relationship and treatment be possible? Well, Mark, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, Mark, we just had a show today on recovery romances, the attraction distraction. Huh. Does that answer answer you? The attraction distraction, you get it? Yeah, (laughs) I got it. Okay, (laughs) thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What is it with these questions? You know, people are asking the questions and hope to hear what it is they hope to hear. <laughs> Which is that uh, we're going to say, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Go for it, man. Shoot, sure thing. Wherever you can find love, and we're going to put on that song, that old country song, looking for love in all the wrong places. In all the wrong places, exactly. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna. How are we on time, sir? Uh, you're working with about five to six minutes. All right, give so or take. I'm going to do X-Files. You can do sure. training. Sure, absolutely. Uh, let's see here. Oh, well, right right, right along the, uh, the show topic. Felicita is asking, why is there such a strong emphasis on separating men and women from responsible interaction in inpatient treatment centers. Well, for the reasons that we talked about in our show topic today, oftentimes their interaction is not responsible. Oftentimes the interaction is immature and irresponsible and in the end both people get harmed because of all the things we talked about in the show topic but just in a nutshell the focus becomes not on me and what I need to do it becomes they go the shit the focus automatically once another person gets involved and it's a romantic thing the, sh- the focus automatically shifts to the other person it's human nature. It happens. You're not going to be able to keep the focus 100% on you, which is what's required in order for you to get yourself in order. Which reminds me of something else, Mr. Mr. Producer, that we used to also say, why do you, why do you want an, an addict as a, as a... Uh, right, as a partner. <laughs> as, a, as a partner. Go out there and find someone who's never been in this life. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But see, there's, there's, there's fear. It's a challenge to do that. Oh, right. The, the stigma that might be attached to you. Exactly. You got to put yourself out there a little bit. That, there you go. Challenge the fears. 
So that's the answer, Felicita. That's why we put. Uh, that's why we uh, we spend a lot of time. Uh, she says separating the men and women. I don't think we spend our time separating the men and women, but we spend a lot of time talking about the the interaction and how it should be versus what it is. That's right. Often. All right. Let's go to Greg from Fremont. Greg, welcome to the oh. show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I had a question today. Uh, it's in regarding the passing of Prop 47 and how it has affected AOD funding. So it hasn't affected AOD funding yet because it hasn't, uh, let's say, matriculated its way through the bureaucratic process to, for them to determine what are the savings as a result of Prop 47 realized by the Department of Corrections, California Department of Corrections, and then once they determine what the savings are, then what the percentage allocations are going to be to the schools, to law enforcement, and to drug treatment. So when was it passed? Last year? Or a year ago? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, Yeah, so it might not be, from what I've heard, it might be five years before anything trickles down if you get what I mean. I do. Okay, thank you for your, the information. You're very welcome, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what they were thinking with Prop 47. Good intentions, but you, you know you know what the old saying. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. Oh, man. Um for those who don't know, Prop 47 was a proposition passed in California that uh, kind of uh, reduced certain crimes that were felonies to misdemeanors. Right. And also uh, reduced the amount of people as, that are committing those crimes going into the prison population. Right. Whereas in the past, they might have qualified for prison time. Now they don't. Um, I believe specifically non-violent crimes. Non-violent crimes. Um, Drug-related charges. But the irony is, I just read this recently, is that they have seen a significant uptick in crime since Prop 47 passed. And unfortunately, because uh, of the particular crimes that they've kind of exempted, right? Um, and because Prop 47 is now in play, the district attorneys don't have the tools to put people in treatment like they did before. Because if you're facing time in prison, and they say, "Look," and you say, "You know, you got a drug problem. Either you're going to do three years, or you're going to go to treatment." Yep. They don't have that option anymore. Right. You know, so they're trying to find ways to finagle it, and you know, and and put hammers over people to try and look. This is what you you you're an addict. You need treatment, but the addict is hey. There's no prison sentence yeah. now? <laughs> right, exactly. What? Probation? Not a ah, problem. Where do I sign? Okay, thank you very much. Sayonara. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Not such a good end result. No. Good intention, but not. I don't think they well thought it out, which happens a lot. In, yeah, in, of course. In this lovely state of, of ours. Of course. And, uh, you know, obviously hindsight you start to see the impact it's actually having, and uh, it doesn't look so good. But like you said, in its conception, in its uh, ideology, if you will, they had the right thinking, but now you got to...
do some amendments yes, to this. clean it up a little bit. Yeah. I think we're we're out of time. <laughs> I'm surprised that you are actually ending on time. However, I'm certain you'll cut me off here. You have anything final to say? No, I think uh, we got our show out. Recovery romances, the attraction, distraction. We needed to get it out, and I think I've uh, I've purged it from my system. Perfect. Good. Great show. Well, again, as always, we'd like to thank everybody who called in to participate, everybody who called in to listen or listen from, by other means, from other sources. We always like to thank...